0: So, when did counseling stop being about problem solving? Well, not anymore. Introducing Solution-Focused Counseling with the Unlicensed Counselor. And now, here's your host, Steve Moak. Well, hello and welcome. Welcome, welcome to another episode of The Unlicensed Counselor. My name is Steve Moak. I am The Unlicensed Counselor and as always, so grateful to be here on another beautiful, sunny Scottsdale, Arizona day. Love this time of year. I'm excited. There's enthusiasm in the air here in studio as I'm grateful to have a guest friend co-founder in studio with me as well Jeff Taylor is going to be joining us as well today to talk on some really interesting topics we're going to touch on his story we're going to touch on criminal justice we're going to touch on homelessness we're going to touch on a lot of different things that we haven't really discussed here on the podcast. So, Jeff, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your day and joining us. I look forward to digging into this. It's a pleasure. Always Always good to see you, Steve. Uh, thank you. And before we jump into this, because I am excited to get to this topic today, it's just I have really interesting friends with really interesting stories, and I hope that some of this is really going to you know, land with our audience out there and get them thinking. But before we do all that, I always want to start by saying thank you to our sponsor, ShareTech. Look, ShareTech is the leading drug and alcohol screen for at-home detection, right? It is performed by a lab. It is the most comprehensive test available on the market. This is not one of those dipsticky type cups that you order on Amazon or CVS or Walmart where you look into the plastic cup and hope that that strip that you can read it and see if there's THC or cocaine or something. The Shere tech test actually detects for over 100 substances. That includes things like alcohol. That includes things like Kratom, things that people use very often that many people don't know uh, are really mind-altering drugs as well, too, especially Kratom. And I want to do a whole episode on Kratom because that's just a nasty thing that's sold over the counter as well, too. And I personally have some friends that are addicted to that right now. And it's ugly stuff. So, if you're in the market for an at-home drug or alcohol screen, please go to our friends at ShareTech, S-H-A-R-E-T-E-K, and pick up one of those drug and alcohol screens as well, too. Now, if you've been listening to the show for any period of time, you know that I'm very passionate about youth drug abuse prevention. That's why jeff myself seth who was just on a previous show another gentleman named hugh hallman co-founded an organization called the coalition for youth drug abuse prevention that's a mouthful but our website is not go to the stopstartshere.org follow us you're going to find some really edgy bold interesting content you know our prevention approach is to use social media to meet the kids where they're at right i think the school assemblies are great But what we need to do is live and get messaging that is saturated to them over the course of a year not just over one hour for one year go to the stopstartshere.org you're going to find videos you're going to find content that we're shooting any even many movies that we've put together and really it's kind of bold edgy stuff around youth drug prevention so all right good stuff well jeff thank you so much for joining the show today really appreciate it you know You know, when I when I asked you to come on, I said, you know, I'd really like to dig into kind of the homeless topic. It's not something I know a ton about. I know you have firsthand knowledge of that. So maybe if we explain, you know, how you became an expert really in this kind of the state of what homelessness looks like in the state of Arizona, the West Coast, nationally, whatever you have thoughts on. How folks got there, and then maybe what are some solutions? Or if we know a loved one who maybe is, is struggling with this, how can we make a difference? I know that's a lot of things, but let's just start at the beginning.
1: Well, I, I would start with homelessness is very broad. And when you hear homelessness, it really encompasses a lot of different populations that have different needs, and they became homeless for different reasons. So I'm just going to mention the two really two. Uh, arenas that we need to define, and then move on to chronically homeless people, and those are Perfect. people that you see that are very visible, that are living in encampments, and it's been really, uh, you know, all over the news in the last two or three years. Really started in in San Francisco, but all up and down the coast where I've been um, on the nonprofit that I serve on their Western United States board, big homeless provider, and so I've been to. Oregon i haven't been to Seattle, uh, but i've we've all seen what's going right. on in yeah. Seattle so, so that's I, the chronically homeless okay. you know people living in encampments but before we get into that, there are people that are getting priced out of apartments and here in Arizona, apartment rents have gone up sixty seventy percent in the last five years so when you're talking about what I call the people that are on fixed incomes, mainly the elderly or people with developmental, dis- that they are disabled, hmm. so they're on a fixed income. Got it. So each time they go and they're housed, you know, five years ago, and each time they go and renew their lease, their lease is up, you know, their lease has increased on monthly basis, two, three, four hundred $400, and they get to the point where they cannot afford on their fixed income. To give an example, I know of, a. True affordable housing project here in town. Uh, it is substantial. They have two mid-rise affordable housing. This organization takes 30% of whatever your fixed income is, and that is what they charge huh. for your own apartment. So if you have a $100 you know, disability check every month, then they take $300, and that gets you your own apartment and also three meals a day, 365 really? days a year. True affordable housing, okay? And there is a 29-month waiting list. Wow. And there are 300 units. Wow. 29-month waiting list. So they mainly deal with the second population that I'll talk about, and that is the elderly. They are, again, on a social security. These are people that have worked their whole lives, and yet they find themselves facing homelessness. My phone rings all the time with this population and the... Availability for affordable housing is is really lacking. So housing first works for those two populations, Got the it. working poor and then people that have been priced out of an apartment that are on a fixed income that are basically the elderly. These are people with not drug problems without uh, or maybe they have low mental health, but that's not the reason why they're in this situation
0: I- I'm glad you kind of took this approach because when I see you know, might and maybe it's the media or just my lack of knowledge on the situation I immediately go to that chronic homeless is that picture mm-hmm. in my mind So I'm glad you're kind of breaking it out into two different buckets. It makes a lot of sense I didn't I just candidly didn't really think about it that way
1: so what we'll talk about on your show and what really is the focus of your, you know, your message on this show is the chronically homeless, and those are people that are living on the streets, living in encampments that are very visible, uh, people that are panhandling on street corners, people that are hanging around you know, light rail routes or public transportation in the cities, they'll ride that to get out of the elements, mm. um, then those may stop in the middle of the night, and so the hot spots are where these um, lines end, where a bus line ends or where that. a light rail ends. And then you get encampments surrounding that until, you know, public transportation opens up the next morning. So the chronically homeless, we need to call it what it is. And what it is is untreated drug addiction, untreated mental illness, or some combination of both. And that is 99% of your chronically homeless that are visible on the street corner. We have families that are homeless, but they're not visible. You know, you may have a single mother that is homeless, but they're not real visible like this. It is not safe for them to be in a homeless encampment. Hmm. These are very, very dangerous arenas in which to hang around. You have desperate people doing desperate things, and they are really hitting us all in organized retail theft, which we all pay for. Right. We've all seen the videos, you know, of organized retail theft. Uh, California, through a ballot initiative, which means it was put to the vote of the public, and they. They basically approved that, I believe it's $950 that it drops to a misdemeanor and it's not an arrestable offense, I think, um, but it's a civil penalty where you're basically given a ticket. I think that means you legalize shoplifting. Right. Right? And we have people that are actually going into retail establishment with a calculator to make sure that they're under the 950 And they'll actually go up and ask the manager of the store, does the nine fifty include tax? Wow. Wow. <laughs> so it just opened the door for criminal behavior. And a housing first model for this population has proven time to time again to be extremely expensive and a disaster.
0: So but I think people uh,
1: you always hear about housing. Now
0: I understand it for kind of the first population that you mentioned about. I mean, but it always gets attached to the chronically homeless. It's like if we can just get them, you know, a bed and a house and a place. But I think that, you know, you are an expert in this field, given the work that you do. That doesn't seem to
1: be the solution or one that works. They don't want the bed. What they need, though, they need shelter because they're not going to go to treatment if they're homeless. They're not going to pick themselves up off the streets and, you know, roll up their sleeping bag and fold up their tent and go to an outpatient treatment facility. So what is needed is residential drug treatment. So basically, you are housed, you are fed, and you are engaged in behavioral health. And the 28-day program just doesn't work for this. Um, People are just really getting their senses back after 28 days. So we need long-term residential treatment, and it can step down to where people are actually still engaged in treatment, and yet going and getting behavioral health in the evenings. So that's the most important part. I call it kind of transitioning out of residential homeless and that they're practicing their recovery. So I, again, like to be simple. So you learn that is in treatment, you practice that is transition. And then you become where you're launched and you are, you know, a productive member of society and you're still treating your addiction by going to 12 step meetings or hanging around people that, you know, are clean and sober. When I, first got into into recovery, I thought I wasn't gonna have any more fun. You know, I was a young person and I was going to concerts and going to parties and going to the clubs and the bars and boy, any, any of those arenas were not going to be fun. Well, I learned that if I hang around sober people, which I do today, then we go to concerts and we do all the things that young people used to do, only we just don't get loaded, right. you know? And we have a better time. Right, and remember it. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's enjoyable. I mean, I've been to Metallica concerts and Megadeth concerts right. and, you know, the Eagles concerts and they're really, really enjoyable. Um, but that was a fear of mine is that they wouldn't be, that f- the fun's over right. and yet here I am. But as you mentioned, I did end up homeless, but I didn't start there it took so when you look out and you see people that are you know panhandling or people that are living in a tent or or just walking down the street that are obviously homeless that's not how they started off you know it took a long time to spiral there you know, this is somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's father that ended up there. But that's not the beginning of their journey. I
0: mean, and if people want to hear a little bit more about Jeff's story, if you go to the the last week's episode, you actually hear a little bit. I mean, Jeff was a collegiate athlete, a D1 athlete at the University of Arizona as a college football player and kind of his road and how we got there. I don't know if we need to go all the way down that again. But what I find so fascinating about you is just aesthetically, when you look, at it, it's like there's no way, you know, when you when that I would look and think that this person was ever homeless or even really you just look like so well put together. But I think that's what I find interesting that, you know, just because what you look like doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have all this stuff behind them.
1: And it used to be the skid row bum, you know, right now people say, you don't look like a homeless drug addict. And I'm like, yes, I do. (laughs) Because there are many young people out there that are coming from good families as I did. And they are, I was just as homeless as the next guy. And and just to make it kind of a short story on how I spiraled down to homelessness is that you want to hang around people that are worse off than you are so I can feel better, right? So I was going to the clubs and then people would go home at 10 o'clock and I'm like, why is everybody going home? So I would stay with the ones that are obviously inebriated, but I wasn't as bad as they were. You know, and I remember driving people home because I wasn't the guy that you babysit. You know, um, and I thought I was, and I was doing that to feel better. It's yeah. not that I really wanted to drive him home. I wanted to feel better. Well, then I didn't have money to go to the clubs because I had lost my job. I had lost at one point my housing. Uh, the last thing to go is really your car. Uh, I'd lost relationships with my family and friends. Now I'm getting more and more isolated. So I started hanging around people that were a little lower than me. Yeah. So I actually would hang out at the... Uh, when you were on a, uh, unemployment. And that was here in the state of Arizona, Department of Economic Security. So I would hang around Department of Economic Security because there were a bunch of people that didn't have you know, jobs just like me, but they were worse off than I was, so I would hang around them. And then they were kind of looking for a job, you know? and maybe that's why they were there, maybe they're getting their unemployment you know, worked out. And now I'm that person, so I had to hang around somebody lower. So now I'm hanging around people that were, you know, homeless like me, maybe couch hopping. You know, they still had relationships and people would let them into your house and they're not visibly in an encampment yet. So I hung around those people, you know, it would couch hop. So I'm not out in the elements. And then that ran out because addiction doesn't stay the same. It gets worse over time. So now I'm hanging around people in homeless encampments because I wasn't as bad as they were. You know, I'm not looking like they right. do, but I hung around them because it made me feel better. I was better than them, yet I was just as homeless as they were. And then I woke up one day and I saw all these homeless people wanting to hang around me. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> felt better because yeah. I was living in a bush. Wow. You know, and that's, took me a while to get there. I didn't just wake up living in a bush. It was a long and arduous road getting down to the lowest of the low, which is living in a bush. And people look at me and they're like, oh, you lived in a bush? And I'm like, hey, don't judge. Like, you know, people judge you if you lived yeah. in a bush. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. It was a pretty bitchin' bush. <laughs> you know, you didn't know. My, my, it was like any real estate. It was like location, location, location. Unbelievable. And I didn't know it was a great bush. I was kind of new to this homeless thing. But when I would leave, other homeless people would move into it. And they'd steal your bush. Yeah, which was shade. You know, it can be 115 degrees here in Phoenix, and it had a lot of shade. And and it was by places like St. Vincent de Paul that, you know, would feed the homeless. It was by legal services, which we'll get into here in a little bit on the the legal aspect. And so I was being arrested for being homeless. Homeless was criminalized. Uh, Here in the state of Arizona, Uh, if you're out by ASU, which is in the city of Tempe, uh, if you sit on the sidewalk and a police officer asks you to move and you don't, you can be arrested for sitting on a sidewalk because that was their way of managing chronic homelessness. So now I'm going to jail. And they don't really hold on to you for a misdemeanor in jail. So I was one of those catch and release guys. So I'd get arrested, spend the night in jail. I'd see an initial appearance judge, and then he would let me go. And actually, it was kind of a rest for me. Because then you know, I had actually you know, some place to sleep, even though it was you know, for only one night. And they would usually feed you something. And then I would be released. And it was like, I didn't really mind getting arrested because I needed a rest. Wow. And I was starving. You know, and so I could get food and, and uh, right. get a night's sleep Makes and sense. then back out into the streets. So, how is it that I got from living in basically my own little encampment into recovery? Addicts understand consequences. Right now, we have lifted the consequences, the legal consequences of criminal behaviors that we all pay for as a society people that are driving under the influence, people that are stealing from retail establishments, uh, violence that we see on the streets. Let's talk about you know, the, the violence of a, of a desperate homeless person that is in, uh, let's say, a convenience store and he's trying to leave and somebody's not gonna put up with that who's a hardworking individual and they try to stop them and then you've got a violent situation. Right. Now, if I go to that person that is doing drug-motivated crime, I call it, then offer them a treatment bed that is free and it is available today, they won't go. Why? Because there's no consequence, why would they? Because we have now kind of the perfect storm for homelessness and that is, here in the state of Arizona in 2018, our governor very wisely, issued a state of emergency for a pharmaceutical addictive substance in in a, in a pill called oxycontin. Yep. And we know about oxycontin yeah. and that's what really kicked off, you know, addiction in this country. It was a pharmaceutical, it was no longer a street drug and that pill was a dollar a milligram and you know, there were different milligram pills, but most of them were 40 or 60 milligram OxyContin so pills. 40
0: or 60 bucks a, a So it shot. was a dollar milligram,
1: okay. 40 or 60 bucks a pill. And you would need six or seven pills a day, depending on okay. your level of addiction. That's a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, that's a lot of work, you know. And there were consequences, meaning you're getting arrested and you're being put in jail. And then we really ramped up diversion programs. And the diversion programs were were limited you know on the charges as they should be you don't want to go too far on the charges to get into the violent realm because then you have a victim you also have a victim when you're doing retail theft but part of like a well-run diversion program like here in in maricopa county which encompasses phoenix is that you've got to pay back victims you have to sign a a letter that you have written out admitting guilt to your crime that can be used against you In the future, but we are going to remove you for now. We're going to put your case on hold. But there's a consequence of if you do not take the treatment pathway that we outline for you, then we're going to use your letter, which is basically a, confec- right. a confession. And we're going to prosecute you on the crime that you committed. And you're going to go to jail or to prison, depending on the level of crime that you're doing. That's a consequence. It seems right? reasonable. Hanging over the person's head. Right. So that's what happened to me. Before diversion was even a word. We're talking about the mid-90s. You pioneered diversions, kind (laughs) of. It was, I believe it was God's intervention because it was not even a word back then. But I had a very wise judge that identified that he looked at my criminal history and I'd never been in trouble in my life until my early 30s. And he's like, this kid, you know, he's a high-functioning guy. He was very successful. And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. This now, I never had a drug charge. I never had a drug possession charge. I never had a DUI. Not that I didn't deserve one, sure. but I was never charged with any of those crimes. So my addiction was hidden in my criminal justice. But the wise judge said, "This guy's doing this because he is a drug is addict." Is it drug motivated or yeah. exactly? Yeah. So he offered me that pathway to treatment, and it was long-term residential treatment, but. He didn't just drop the charge. What he did was he hung that over my head. He said, Mr. Taylor, if you are back in front of me and you do not complete this treatment program, then you're going to be back in my court and I am going to sentence you to a term of imprisonment. And at that time, my plea agreement was four to six years in prison. That's a consequence. That's a serious consequence. Did that get your attention? Did that wake you up? You bet. I would think so. The consequence did. Right. I was offered treatment before I had... Uh, really any sort of problems with the criminal justice system, and I didn't go. So treatment with no kind of looming consequences was just, eh. Not for this population. Got it. Now, maybe it might have been something that I would have considered earlier on in my spiral. Before you progressed. Mm -hmm. That makes a ton of sense. So we're taking, you know, we're, uh, you know, the cartels are very, they're very good at what they do. More powerful, more addictive, less cost. And that is really something we've never really faced. Drugs used to be narcotic drugs were very expensive. I had a two, three hundred dollar a day narcotics, you know, addiction. And that required a lot of work. Nowadays, you can stand on a street corner because that sixty, fifty, whatever dollar pill will average it out at fifty bucks a pill, you know, and you need many of them, two to three hundred dollars a day. Now that same pill in potency, in fentanyl, which is an illegally produced drug in other countries that are imported to this country and sold on the streets. That pill has gone from $50 a pill down to $1 a pill.
0: I don't think people realize that. Mm -hmm. I think they just hear fentanyl and the cartels and stuff, and they just kind of think that. But that is so cheap that—and it's probably why you— somewhat explains all the panhandling that you mm-hmm. see I think that's not just in this state I think that's everywhere now because you get 50 or 100 bucks and you are set now I mean you are set to get Not even eye.
1: you can stand on a street corner with a scribbled sign on a cardboard box that says god bless please help and raise twenty bucks a day and be a full blown wow. what we would have called a heroin addict. Right. It used to be two, three hundred, even four hundred dollars Are people even using heroin anymore? I mean, is that even a thing? It's been enti- I was talking to a police officer the other day and they actually made a bust where there were several types of drugs in the car. They were dealers and they found heroin and they're like, God, we haven't seen this in over a year. School. Yeah, we haven't seen heroin. And this is a police officer that does narcotics busts all the time. So fentanyl has replaced heroin. And it is the smuggler's dream. So fentanyl is really made out of a a very concentrated uh, pharmaceutical powder called carfentanil. And carfentanil is where you see the picture of the little, like a little granule of sand that's a lethal dose. Now, in a four- and and I had a member of the DEA explain this to me who deals with this at our border, four-inch by four-inch box that they're flying over the border in drones. Drones now. And there's 250,000 doses in that box. We are being flooded. Flooded. And that's how it's very dangerous because people that don't know how to dilute that right. into something that is not going to kill people is that's how we... We have people that are dying on the streets, 112,000, I think, that we heard on your last show. Yeah, overdoses annually. Annually, which is a massive amount, mainly young people, a massive amount of people that are expiring every year needlessly. 100% preventable. You know, drug addiction and drug overdose death is 100% preventable.
0: So so then now we've got, it seems like encampments, it used to just be skid row. Like that was the one that I knew about growing up. Now it seems like skid rows are everywhere. They're encampments. We had one called The Zone here in Arizona. So why do, is everybody just congregate in order to deal
1: drugs or to,
0: I, I don't understand how that started happening, why we haven't started doing anything. I, I guess I'm just naive to that. Do you have any more insight? Well, misery loves
1: it? company and that's what that occurred. What it and usually these encampments will pop up where they can be fed. Okay. So it's a magnet to just feed people without other services. Feed it's okay actual to feed food. People. Like, so, mm-hmm. okay, got, like, it. Like, got it. Like organized feeding programs. Got it. And and one of them is St. Vincent de Paul, who I love St. Vincent right. de Paul. Okay, they need some help. Okay, their mission is to combat hunger for the least among us. What a great mission, right? But without the other uh, really organizations that need to surround them, then you just bring people into that community and they get fed and they walk out of being fed with the same drug problem or mental illness that they walked in with. Mm -hmm. So that's a part of it. They need some help. They need other behavioral services that are surrounding that. And still, it's very difficult to move people on from living on the streets into a residential high barrier, you know, where you have to have sobriety, where it's verified in sobriety. Um, You are drug tested. That's too big of a leap. But the best pathway I know is to start enforcing the law. So people then push back. And I'm in public policy. And I'm down at our Capitol. And I work a little bit in Texas and a little bit in Washington, D.C. on solutions to our chronic homeless problem. And the solutions to me, the best solution to me is we've got to start enforcing the law. Well, then I get pushback that you're outlying homelessness. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I am outlying drug dealing. I am outlying assaults. I am outlying aggravated assault, which is felony assault. Got it. I am outlying... Sexual assault on women. Women are being sexually Ugh. assaulted every se- try to be a woman I can't, and be in a chronically homeless situation.
0: How dangerous it
1: has to be. We need to protect these people from themselves a lot of times, but enforce the law. Addicts understand consequences, make it hurt. I sat, I sat in a jail cell for six months. Now we're gonna, f- you know what, we're gonna fill up some jails, but you know, we're gonna reduce recidivism. So I'm no genius, wrote a law here in the state of Arizona. I work in public policy, and I wrote a law uh, way back in 2002. And this is just modeled after my own life. And what this law does is it takes people that are already sentenced to prison. Okay, we're not into sentencing reform. We're into rewarding good behavior in a prison. And as a reward, under certain charges again, then that person is offered a 90-day early release into a... Behavioral health pathway. Like a
0: step down. Right. Right.
1: But not just a transition. It's a behavioral health pathway. We have people in our prisons. I think our last exit assessment by Arizona Department of Corrections on people that are being released from prison is that 82% had a behavioral health problem that is untreated. Okay. So we need to combine the both. You know, and, and why I say combining is consequence plus help. If you just have a consequence, people are going to get out with the same drug problem they were arrested with. Only when I was being arrested and I was put in to you know different county jails and I spent some time in Arizona Department of Corrections, is I got to network with a bunch of other people that were just like me. Hmm. I know how to cook crystal methamphetamine four different ways, <laughs> and I didn't <laughs> I even use laugh. the drug. I shouldn't laugh. I mean, it but doesn't get mean that I wouldn't use the drug. Right? It was just not my drug of choice. So that's the kind of skills that I learned while being incarcerated. And and you know and that's not just here in Arizona, it's throughout our criminal justice, right. you know, prisons, federally and state run prisons and jails throughout the country. So it's not, you know, it's not an Arizona problem, it's a problem throughout the country. So what if we were to do this? You know, people are going to suffer consequences. You broke the law, you have a victim, and we're going to award good behavior in the prison, meaning if you're going to you know, some of your treatment classes, because you can't force anybody to do anything in a prison. A lot of people are offered you know, behavioral health help, and they're just like, I'm not going to do it. You, know, you can't force somebody in. Right. But a lot of people with an incentive and an in early release, then they go. But we measure that in the prison. You can't you know, have any violent acts in the prison. And people are told this in the beginning. So when you have less like drug use in the prison, less violence in the prison, it makes it for a safer community for the people that are incar- makes excuse me, incarcerated, but also for the guards that work there because they're the ones that have to manage the violence. Born. And you know, whenever drugs get into a prison yard, then that in- violence increases. Number one reason for inmate to inmate violence is that you owe somebody. Is that really it? Number one I reason. I didn't know that. And that means that you probably borrowed you know, money, not money, you borrowed drugs, okay. you were know, given drugs on credit, you can't pay it back, and that causes violence. So whenever drugs hit a yard, and it's very difficult to keep drugs out of a, a prison, it's been getting into prisons, it just finds a way. It's kinda like the first Jurassic Park, life found a way. <laughs> <laughs> drugs find a way. Before. You know? It, it, and, it makes sense, right? Right, so this program, has released since 2003, when it became law, 25,000 people 90 days early into the behavioral health pathway. And how do you measure the success of any correctional system is your recidivism Recidivism. rate. How many people go back? Coming back. And I remember working with our county attorney. Uh, I love this man. His name is Bill Montgomery. He's basically the top cop in, in Maricopa County. He's the prosecutor, elected a prosecutor. And he and I worked on this and... He said you know what we can if we are reducing recidivism recidivism equals crime because you're reoffending. Right. if we can reduce recidivism a we're going to save money because they're not going back to prison b we're going to make it a safer community because redu- reduction in recidivism is a reduction in crime and then we're making it safer in in the prison you know it's a win 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 all around and if you're given this pathway to treatment and you Violate this, then guess what? There's another consequence. Maybe treatment works the second time or third time. You know, uh, treatment communities don't give up on people. I like to think that God never gave up on me. You know, He just kept at it until I finally got it.
0: So, are are we, this all makes too much sense. Like, why is, I mean, if it's working here, is it working other places? Are they just not doing this? Why aren't we kind of taking this approach at more of a national level? Or maybe we
1: are and I just don't know about it. I would love to go to the governors in this country and sit down with the governor and say, depending on your, your size of your, your prison system, because we have different populations in different states, but let's use a percentage and just say, let's say that I could decrease your dependency on your prison beds by 20% and make it a safer community in the prison and save a ton of money in your reincarceration costs and make a safer community, would you do it? And they would go, of course, they would do it. I mean, who would say no to it's that? Not, it's not possible. It's political suicide, if right. you would, <laughs> right? And it's getting easier. Right? You know, it was very difficult in the beginning.
0: And, and we're talking nonviolent folks, too. So I just don't want right? people to think that, I mean, if you've done, I mean, because I want those people locked away, mm-hmm. right? If you've hurt me or my daughter or you murdered or... I mean, this is nonviolent stuff that we're talking about, Well, right? we
1: increased it to certain violent... Because it's so, it's so popular in the outcomes that we have people that have drug problems that maybe had a bar fight. Okay. That's reasonable. And right? you know, when we were younger, a I, bar fight, you know, the police would show up and I'd they would say, you know what? You're gonna go that way. You're gonna go <laughs> right? that way. You know, do you want to press charges? And usually it's like, no, you know yeah. what? We're just going to separate you two and you just go home and there were no charges, right? right? Now, you know, it's, it's kind of somebody's going to jail. And now you have a violent criminal history. So, you know, something like a bar fight, what we call assault, uh, a simple assault, which in you know, a lot of states is a misdemeanor. And then we even stretched it a little bit up to felony assault. Um, which is, you know, where usually somebody is is harmed, you're going to have a victim. But the argument is, are we going to not reward good behavior, hold on to this individual for 90 days and not give them any help? Okay. Or are we going to reward good behavior, get them out 90 days earlier, which is about $6,000 just on the 90-day early release, just to release them 90 days early. That's savings? About 6,000 bucks and that's pretty consistent throughout the states and give them a lot of help on the back end so i believe that that you know is there's people that are never going to get out of prison on some of the of the crimes that you mentioned. Right. You know, murders, multiple rapes, uh, child molestation. Good. Sorry. You know, they right. are long term people, even if they do get out. And when they do get out, oftentimes they're very old people. And as you get older, you have a less propensity to commit a violent crime. I concentrate on the people that maybe got into a bar fight because they were drunk.
0: Yeah.
1: You that, know, that makes total sense. We all know people that are not very violent people until they get a snootful, yep. and then all of a sudden yeah. they're Aw. a different person. Um, you know, people just become some people. Not all some people become more violent. So the I, I believe that the key is is that a we treat people like the human being they are and offer them this pathway. But it's really up to you. It's up to you to go to your classes in prison. It's up to you to stay out of trouble. It's up to you to um, to not use drugs on a prison yard. And that's what addicts do, they use drugs on a prison yard. So we adjusted the, the law that you can't have a positive drug test in the six months prior to your release, Makes okay? Sense. So it's kind of asking too much, you know, you're feeling miserable, you just wanna feel better, drugs hit the yard and then you get, you know, that's what addicts do. Yeah. I mean, fish swim, birds fly, Addicts use drugs. <laughs>
0: I mean, you and I are living proof of that, yeah. right? I mean, that's that's kind of what goes along with it. Well, th- this is good stuff. we got a few minutes left. I mean, it, some closing thoughts on this and maybe some thoughts around if you know a loved one or have a loved one who's maybe going through or experiencing homelessness or is trending that way. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you could do? I hear the consequences plus help. I love that. That makes sense. It seems reasonable. Any other thoughts to kind of put a bow on this as we're kind of coming to an end here? So my
1: parents, I never really realized how hard this was on my parents because I just disappeared you know, into the drug world. They didn't know where I was. They knew that I wouldn't go into treatment because they had offered me treatment. And so I had really given up one day. I'd had enough and I called them up and I said, hey, I'm coming home. And I can just imagine what that was like on the other end of, of the phone. So do not enable your children do not enable them because you will enable them into the grave. And people say, well, they're living on the streets. And I'm like, children are dying in their beds in their house.
0: But I mean, that's paying their cell phone bill, giving them money. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the enabling we're talking about here, folks. And I mean, you know,
1: just what you want to do as a parent, What we're how God designed us as a parent is to make sure your children are safe and fed and that you care for them. Which is, this is hard to do. So how you're wired oftentimes is the exact opposite of what you should be doing with your children. Back to my parents. So when I got home, they left in a hurry. I mean, there was food in the microwave, like fans are still going, the house is all locked up. Now in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they didn't have enough food. They went to the store so they can feed and clothe and take care of me for a while, like parents are wired to do. Well, my parents are black belts in tough love. OK, they left. They were not going to let me in the house. They left. And so I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. So I came up with a plan and the plan was I'm going to break a window, but I'm not going to enter. So now I'm a misdemeanor. You know, I'm a misdemeanor. I knew the law. Right. So I'm going to break a window. It's just criminal damage. Right. And then the alarm's going to go off and then the alarm company is going to call my parents and then they're going to feel sorry for me and come home and feed and clothe me and take care of me for a while. It's not exactly what happened. Did did it go down that way? So the alarm, I broke the window. The alarm went off. The alarm company called my parents. My parents called the police and they came and fed and clothed me and took care of me for a while. I was arrested. Wow. By my parents' phone call to the police. Wow. And they're like, do you want him arrested? They said, absolutely. Now that was very hard for my parents to do that, to arrest their child. do you think they knew how to, to do that or that that was the right course? I think Did they had a lot of advice. They yeah. had shut off all my friends, don't let them in the house. They were shutting every door because they knew the last door I would go to is the treatment door. Yeah. Yeah. So they had to shut all, I'm going to go to the weakest link. Yeah. So there is the message. You got to shut every option down. And the only door I believe is jail for criminal behavior and then help because that's what I've seen in the last 25 years as the most effective way to deal with the people that we're seeing that are homeless in encampments on the streets. Wow.
0: Look, I mean, the term miracle gets thrown out a lot and sometimes I think a little bit too generously, but not in your case. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is an incredible, and, and if you ever, hopefully I can get some time with you and dig into this more. It is a fascinating story. You're a brilliant man. Your insights into this are so, so sharp. I appreciate you opening up and kind of sharing mm-hmm. with my audience as well too. I really appreciate it and thank you. Well, like I've
1: always said, Steve, we are better together. You know, whenever <laughs> we're together, we're better. That's right.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to go do some radio this afternoon together. Yes, right? we are.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Wow. I hope
0: everybody out there in the unlicensed counsel world got as much out of that as I did. You know, it's one of these things. As you know, I'm still getting used to interviewing everybody. I'm st- and I've heard your story in great detail multiple times. I'm fascinated by it. And I just think there's so much that we could all learn. And then layer in your criminal justice knowledge and experience and what you're sharing. Why we're not looking at that as kind of a nationwide type of thing. I'm going to dig into that a little
1: bit more. And remind me to come back on your show and tell you about um, me finding Fluffy the $50 lost cat. (laughs) Okay, I'll do that. And next time, bring a picture of the bush, too. I want to put
0: that (laughs) out on social media. Wow. Great stuff, everybody. Again, thank you so much, Jeff. Well, I hope you learned something today, folks, on The Unlicensed Counselor. This was such a treat to have our friend in studio and hopefully had some insights. I know that, you know, not everyone knows someone that's homeless, but like Jeff said so eloquently, it was a long journey to kind of get there. And hopefully if you do have somebody in your life struggling with drugs or alcohol, maybe you can connect with them now Mm -hmm. to prevent that journey down the road. So that's all we've got. Hey, this is, I think, going to be the last episode before we close out the year. So I just want to say Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, all yeah. the good things that this, this year has brought to all of us. Thanks for listening to The Unlicensed Counselor. And until next time, thank you very
1: much.